All right. Thank you so much, worship team. Thank you, Mark. If you would turn to Acts chapter 13, we want to continue worshiping by listening to what God has to say to us through his word um, in this way this morning. Um, it's good to see you all. Hope you're doing well. I'd like to read for us the first 12 verses of Acts chapter 13, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time together again. So Acts 13, verse 1 says, Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him. And he went away, excuse me, went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much for the privilege of having your word and hearing your word. We do pray that you would grant the Holy Spirit to minister the truth to our hearts, to open our eyes to see, to give us grace to receive your word, to see how it applies to each of us individually to truly hear it and heed it. We pray that you would help us to be doers of your word, not hearers only. Pray that you help me to speak well of you and to speak your word faithfully. And we pray that it would bear much fruit in our lives for your glory, for our good, and for the good of those in our families, in our workplaces, in our world. And so we commit this time to you and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, to make ourselves happy, we must make others happy. Which is an interesting thing to think about. In order to make ourselves happy, we must make make others happy. Now, I don't know what the context was, but knowing Charles Spurgeon, it was probably in a context like what we find Acts 14 talking about. The context of 
sharing the gospel and wanting people to come to Christ and helping people to grow in their faith in Christ. It's always helpful for me to be reminded of um, just the basics, like why am I here? Not just here in this building, but why am I here on this planet? And the Bible tells us in different ways God created us to be holy and happy and to be uh, holy and happy in his love. And the older uh, godly people talked about the fact that we were created to glorify and enjoy God. And all of that is the same kind of thing, to be holy like God is and to be happy in God. That's what God created us for. And yet we live in a fallen world and we were born uh, estranged from God. And so the only way we can actually glorify and enjoy God or be holy and happy in his love is if, first of all, we are reconciled to God. And so we have to turn from our sin and trust Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. But then once we've done that, to walk with Christ means I trust God's word and I love like he calls me to love according to his word. And so turning and trusting Jesus is the way we begin. Trusting and loving is the way we continue. And it's very important to realize that part of that love that we're called to is about making other people happy. Um, Our pursuit of happiness in God is an embrace of what God calls me to do. And he calls me to love people. And loving people means I'm actually pursuing their happiness. You don't love someone and not pursue their happiness. But the happiness we're talking about is happiness in God and happiness in his love for us through Jesus. And that's where what we find in Acts chapter uh, 13, as well as the whole book of Acts, is very applicable for all of us, regardless of how God might have gifted us or called us. And so we can begin by asking, do you know anybody in your life that doesn't know Christ? And all of us would say, of course, of course we do. We all know people that are not Christians. We all know people that have not found their happiness in God through Jesus. But the question is, number one, how do I think about that reality? How do I think about the fact that there are people around me that don't know Christ? And secondly, what do I do about that What do I personally do about that? What does God want me to do personally? And I think Acts chapter 13 is a great chapter to think about uh, those kinds of questions. Um, Last week ago, Saturday, I was working out in the yard, and there were a couple ladies coming down one side of the street, and uh, I think it was probably a husband and a wife going down the other side of the street, and the Two ladies come, they, they stop me and they say, hey, uh, good afternoon or whatever time it was, maybe morning. And they said, um, aren't you afraid uh, about the future? I said, no, I think Jesus is in control and I, I think it's going to be okay. And they said, well, don't you think things are getting worse? And I, I said, yeah, I think things will probably get worse before Jesus comes back. And they said, well, uh, but I think we can trust him. I think we can trust Jesus no matter how bad it gets. Uh, and they say, well, you must be somebody that reads the Bible. I say, yeah, I read the Bible. I'm a Christian. And they said, well, you know, we're Christians too. And I said, oh, that's interesting. So what church are you with? And they said, oh, we're Jehovah, Jehovah Witnesses. 
I said, well, you know what? I think there's a difference between what Christians believe and what what you believe. As Christians, we believe in a triune God, um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe Jesus is fully God. And we actually believe that we're saved by grace through faith alone, not works. And at that point, it kind of evolved into, well, have a good day type thing. And the conversation kind of ended and they, they moved on. But in thinking about that, um, they were walking down the street, engaging people, knocking on doors, offering people something. The question is, what were they offering people? And I thought about that conversation. I wish I had asked the question, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you out here on a Saturday, spending your Saturday, going door to door, talking to people? Uh, why? What motivates you to do that? Uh, what do you, and the other part of the question is, what are you really offering people? And so we've been talking about um, the book of Revelation. And what I'd like to do is kind of make a bridge between the end of Revelation and the book of Acts as we begin to look at the book of Acts again. We concluded our study in Revelation last week. We talked about the last verses in chapter 22 uh, where Jesus says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So the book of Revelation is a number of different things, but it's definitely a letter because um, it starts off with a greeting like you would find in a letter, and it actually closes like you would find a closing in a letter. And yet it's a prophecy, it's, it's apocalyptic uh, literature and all those things. But the last thing it says is, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. And I think it was John Piper who high, highlighted one time that, that the letters in the New Testament usually start with um, the grace of God to you and end with the grace of God be with you. Which means everything in the book is actually meant to give you grace. So the wish at the beginning of the book is uh, grace and peace to you. At the end of the book it is the grace of God be with you. God has given us his word to give us grace, which is uh, on the one hand, we understand grace as undeserved favor, but it's also the enabling to trust God like we should and to love people like we should. So it's both of those things, and that's what is being reflected here when it says the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May you, in light of the truth of this book, be enabled in greater ways to trust the Lord and to love people. And so the question is, what kinds of things does the book of Revelation encourage us to, um, to receive grace for? And the first thing is simply to remember what the realities of life really are, to see reality as it is. The whole book is a picture. It's the picture book of Jesus that's meant to unveil what is really true about life. And so you've got a dragon, you've got two beasts, and you've got a beauty in the book of Revelation. Those are pictures of what's really happening in the world. The dragon is the devil who, it says in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and, th- and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, which means God is sovereign, and yet in some sense, the dragon is 
has power over this world. And so you've got the beast. One beast represents tyrannical government that's trying to force you to do what it wants you to do. You've got the other beast is false religion that's trying to draw you away from Christ and cause you to believe in that which will never satisfy. And then you've got the harlot, which is the beauty, which is ungodly culture that is just trying to seduce you into living your life for what this world offers instead of looking to God for the satisfaction of your souls. And so the book of Revelation is meant to help us realize that this is not Disneyland. This world is not Disneyland. This world is a battleground. And the question is, how how should we be living in a world that's really dangerous? And should we be concerned about people who don't realize any of that reality? They don't see that at all. Should we be concerned? And of course, the answer is yes, we should be concerned. It's interesting to me, there's a movie out now called The Sound of Freedom. Sound of Freedom is about human trafficking. And what's been interesting is to see people on one political end of the spectrum actually dismiss and think the the movie is just propaganda from the right. And the question is, why would someone not like the idea of a movie that exposes human trafficking? Well, because it says in 1 John, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Because the evil one uh, is behind human trafficking. And the evil one likes to keep those things in the dark because he doesn't want them exposed. He doesn't want them addressed. And so there's a real dynamic going on in this world that we have to be aware of and realize that, um, yes, there's a lot of good in this world. And by God's grace, there's a lot of good in this world. And yet this is not a safe place for anyone in light of the realities that we see in the book of Revelation. Secondly, the book of Revelation is meant to say to us as believers, don't let that reality make you afraid. Uh, Don't be uh, dismayed by the hard things that you're going to go through and the harsh realities of a fallen world. In Matthew 24, it says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. One of the things that is challenging is the issue of expectations. And obviously, when Jesus died and then rose from the dead, the believers wondered what was next. At this point, uh, is everything going to get great? You know, you, you lived, you died, you rose again. Is everything going to be wonderful now? And the book of Revelation says, uh, not yet. Everything is not going to be wonderful yet. Uh, there's going to be a lot of suffering. In fact, all those who embrace Jesus um, will be hated. Uh, lawlessness will increase. All these things that were just mentioned in that passage are going to be a part of life in a fallen world between the first coming of Christ 
in the second coming of Christ. So don't be discouraged by that. That's why Peter could say, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're going through. Because Jesus told us it's going to happen. That everything isn't going to be made new right away. And therefore, we need to be careful of expecting things to be great and wonderful and easy. In fact, we should be surprised when they're easy. We should be surprised when they're not more like what we see in Matthew 24. Because in a lot of countries, they are that way. For a lot of believers, they are hated. Uh, it is very difficult. That's why we have fo- you know, focus on the persecuted church around the world, world. Because a lot of people, a lot of believers in various places can read Matthew 24 and say, that's where we are right now. That's probably where we're going uh, as a country. There's a little card on my refrigerator from a local contractor who's a Christian. And on that card, there's a cross um, that's kind of woven into his card and into his name. And I thought about that this morning that uh, in giving out his card, um, we got this card a long time ago. He probably wanted people to know that he was a Christian back when it was actually a positive thing to be a Christian. Now it's becoming less and less positive. And there's probably going to be less and less crosses on business cards because you're going to realize uh, that's not necessarily going to be something that people welcome and think, oh, you're a great person because you're a Christian. Because the reality is more and more people are, are seeing Christians as being bigoted and hateful and therefore people that are actually a hindrance to progress rather than someone you really want to do business with. And so we aren't to be dismayed by those things. Just realize that the book of Revelation told us this is the way it's going to be. The third thing is it calls us to overcome. It calls us to fight to overcome these things uh, by faith. Over and over again, if you look at the end of the seven letters to the churches, at the end it says to him who overcomes, I promise these things. And so it's a call, it's an encouragement to overcome. First John 5, 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Basically, the book tells us that there are going to be trials and temptations, and it's going to be a test of your faith. It's been amazing to me how many um, well-known Christians over the last 10 years have just walked away from the faith for various reasons. And the reality is that that's always uh, something that's happening, maybe not as well-known people, but our faith is being tested. And Jesus says that we must endure to the end. The context of all the talk about his return and what's going to happen, there's a call to hang in there. Don't let go of the promises of God, no matter how hard it gets at one point in the ministry of jesus you may remember he talked about eating my um, body and drinking my blood dan mentioned that last week and many of the disciples walked away many of those who were following jesus stopped following him and jesus looks at the 12 and says will you go away too of course peter says where are we going to go you have the words of life. And that's the question is when trials are so hard 
and temptations are so great, Jesus is essentially asking us in both those situations, trials and temptations, will you go away? And does our heart respond, where am I going to go? You have the words of life. I'm looking to you for everything I need and everything I desire. And if you don't give it to me, I have no place else to go. I have no one else to turn to. And so I'll, I'll stick with you. I'll trust what you say. That is the test of life between the first coming and the second coming. But the good news is there is going to be a time when Jesus comes back. There is going to be a, a time when everything is made new. And that's why the book of Revelation also encourages us to look up, to, to actually be engaged enough with what's going on around you to actually identify when the, the return of Christ is actually near. And so there's a place for, for watching the news and being aware of what's going on. In Luke 21, it says, But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. The reality is the, the parable of the fig tree would make no sense and have no point if there weren't things that Jesus was talking about that when we begin to see them, we don't have to have a debate over whether or not that's an indication that Jesus' return is near. The implication is those things are going to be so clear and so dramatic that we will know, the body of Christ is going to know this is the fulfillment of Scripture. And I think Paul talks about that in Second Thessalonians 2 when he talks about the great apostasy and when he talks about the man of lawlessness. And I think there are some other things that would be included there too. But... Over and over, Jesus says, be on the alert, be on the alert, be on the alert, which means look, be looking for certain things that are indications that my return is near. And the, the important thing about that is, even if Jesus doesn't come in our lifetime, we are to be ready for his return. And we are to live our lives in light of the fact that one day we will stand before him. And th- so therefore, whether he comes in our lifetime or not, Um, that alertness and that watching for what he told us to watch for actually helps us to live our lives in better ways, to be more like what he calls us to. Now, I'll share all that because that is the context for the last thing that we see in Revelation chapter 22, which we talked about last time in verse 17, where it says, The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. History is moving toward two primary things, the judgment, the final judgment, and a new heaven and a new earth. That's where history is going. And in order to enjoy the new heaven and the new earth, you have to make it through the final judgment. You have to actually actually be rescued from the just consequence of your sin. Because if you're not rescued from the just consequence of your sin, you don't get to enjoy the new heaven and the new earth. 
And that's why at the very end of the book, it says, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. The Spirit, obviously, is a reference to God the Holy Spirit, which means God says, come. The Bride is a reference to the church as a whole, which means the church as a whole says to unbelievers, come to Jesus for what you need in light of the judgment and in light of the promise of heaven on earth. And then it says, and let the one who hears say, come, which is a reference to individual Christians. Let the one who hears the gospel, receives the gospel, is trusting in Jesus himself. You individually tell people to come to Jesus for the water of life, a water that cleanses us and then satisfies our thirst. And so there's a corporate nature and an individual aspect to the call on us as Christians to call people to come to Christ. One of my favorite parables is in Matthew 22. It's called the parable of the um, wedding feast. Um, Jesus tells this parable and he says in chapter uh, 22, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. So, so notice you have a king who's throwing a wedding feast, a glorious, wonderful occasion, and this wedding feast is exalting his son. And he tells his servants, go extend invitations to certain people. Invite them to come, just like at the end of Revelation Come, invite them to come. And it says, and he sent out, but says that they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So what's going on here? This is a picture of the king telling us his servants to invite people to a wedding feast. Invite people to a feast that has already been prepared. It was prepared 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. Come. My, it says the, um, everything's been butchered. There are people who would say, if you saw Jesus on the day he was crucified, uh, it would not be a clean Jesus on the cross. He would look like he had been butchered, dying in our place. And the king says, everything is prepared. Everything is ready. You just invite people to the feast. That's a picture of what we see at the end of Revelation 22 when he says, as a church, corporately, and as individual believers, invite people to a feast in which everything has already been prepared. And the preparation has been through the son who is actually the honored guest or the honored person at the feast. But it says they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers. And set their city on fire, which says it's no small matter to reject the invitation. It's a very serious thing for, 
for God to invite you to be forgiven, to invite you to enjoy eternal life, and for you to say, no, I don't want it. It's a very serious thing because what is the alternative? If if mercy is offered to someone who deserves justice and they say, I don't want your mercy, then the only other alternative is justice. There's no injustice. There's either mercy or justice. And so it's a serious thing to reject the invitation. And in the context of when Jesus told this story, he was especially talking about the Jewish people, about how they've been invited to the ministry of Jesus, and most of them just rejected him. And so it goes on to say, Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. It's exactly what is happening in Acts chapter 13. The beginning of the Gentile mission, the beginning of Paul's mission to the Gentiles, his very first journey is starting in Acts chapter 13. And so the first part of the book of Acts is primarily about Peter and his ministry to the Jews and what God was doing in that area which is like the first part of that parable. Invite those. Tell those that who, who've been invited, like the Jews had been invited already, and go tell those who've been invited to come. They say, no, we're unwilling to come. And so now, God says, we're going to the Gentiles. Go to those who are uh, along the highways and all that you find there, invite to the wedding feast. It says, those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. So that parable is a picture of what's happening in the book of Acts. It's a picture of how God, obviously, is still at work to save Jewish people. Paul's going to say uh, that we preach the gospel first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. He's going to start with preaching in the synagogues. So they're they're not going to stop preaching to the Jews, but so many of the Jews are just saying we're unwilling to come. And so the gospel is being taken now in in a very intentional way to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 1, and this is the bridge that I'm getting to um, again, Uh, with regard to what we find in the book of Revelation and what we find in the book of Acts, the very uh, first chapter in the book of Acts, in verse 6 it says, So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So is the kingdom going to come now? And Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you when the kingdom is going to come because you just need to focus on what you're supposed to be doing until it comes. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So the book of Revelation is all about the unveiling of Christ 
at the end of time, the second coming of Christ. Here at the very beginning of the book of Acts, we see that the call to be witnesses is in the context of Jesus ascending to heaven and the angels reminding the disciples he's going to come again. But he's told you that you're to be about something until he does. You're to be his witnesses in this world until he comes again. You're to be offering the water of life. You're to be like those employees at the end of the aisle in Sam's or Costco. And you've got food and drink offering to people as they come by. And some people want it, other other people do. Um, and that's the way we're supposed to live our life in a sense, is to be offering people the water of life. But if you're like me, that's easy to say. It's harder to do. Sometimes it's hard to know what that looks like. Sometimes it's hard to know how to do it with certain people and in certain situations. And yet we need the encouragement of embracing the fact that, yeah, that's really what my life is supposed to be about to some degree. And how can I grow in that? And so I'm hoping as we go through this chapter, we'll think hard about what does it look like for me personally to offer the water of life to people in my life who are not Christians. And I want to talk about, these are applications. You don't have to be an expert to offer the water of life. You ought to expect it to be a hard thing to actually offer the water of life. We need to play the long game, which means be in it for the long haul. We need to focus on the basics. We need to present an able and willing Savior to people. It makes a big difference how we're presenting Jesus. Don't want to be like the Westboro Baptist Church, if you have any idea who that is and how they try to interact with people in a very negative fashion. Um, But we also need to remember that we do this, but we're not responsible for people's unbelief, nor are we responsible for people's belief. Uh, We do not have that power, and we don't have that kind of responsibility. The question is, what kind of responsibility do we have if we're, not, if we're not responsible to make people Christians, then what is our responsibility? And so I think this chapter will help us think about that because the reality is, if you have young children, it should be your concern uh, to bear witness to them and to see them come to Christ. If you have people in your extended family that aren't Christians, we should desire to see them come to Christ. If we have co-workers or we have neighbors, we we should desire to see them come to Christ, but we're not responsible for their unbelief, we're not responsible for their their belief, but we are responsible for something. And we have to be careful of just kind of dismissing our responsibility altogether. And so hopefully as we go through this, we'll think about that. So the very first part I want to focus on is in verses 1 through 3. Because it talks about the sending of uh, Barnabas and Saul. Um, And the first point is you don't have to be an expert. And basically what I want us to see in these first three verses is that not everyone is called to be a missionary, but everyone is called to be a messenger. There's a difference between being a messenger and being a missionary. Although sometimes we talk about those as the same thing. There's a story I was trying to remember this morning that Janice told me about someone 
who got saved and um, they were actually seemingly ready to hear the gospel and somebody shows up at their door and um, knocks on the door and they open the door and that person says something like, you wouldn't want to hear the gospel, would you? I forget who that is. Martha Peace. If you know anything about Martha Peace, I guess that's part of her testimony. God had been at work in her life and somebody just kind of shows up at the door and says, you wouldn't want to hear the gospel, would you? Expecting her Say, no, I wouldn't, you know. And if there was ever a weak beginning to the presentation of the gospel, that's a weak presentation point to start. And yet, how many times do we feel that way? I feel that way all the time. You wouldn't want to hear the gospel, would you? Um, And a lot of that comes from the idea that I don't feel adequate. I'm not the expert I need to be. I don't feel like I have all the equipping I need all the knowledge that I need. Well, um, verses 1 through 3 highlights, I believe, number 1, God's missionary heart. Because you notice in verses 1 through 3, it's God who sends out Saul and Barnabas. It wasn't the church. The church was part of it, but the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me uh, Saul and Barnabas. It was God's heart for missions that actually caused the church to have a heart for missions. Just like Spurgeon says, no one loves like Jesus loves. You could be the most person, loving person on the planet and your love will be nothing compared to God's love. I could have the greatest missionary heart on the planet and it will be nothing compared to God's missionary heart. That's important to realize because that's what we want to communicate to people as we interact with them. Well, it says in the first three verses that It talks about the church in Antioch. Antioch was a city in Syria, which is north, just north of Israel. It's in that part of the world. And it says in this church that there was a lot of gifted people. There were prophets and teachers, uh, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with uh, Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. So those men are mentioned as being prophets and teachers, Obviously, a prophet is a complex kind of thing in the scriptures. Those who foretell and foretell. And they were gifted in proclaiming the word of God. And obviously, teaching has different applications as well, both on the local level and uh, to the larger body of Christ. But these were gifted men, and God sets apart two of the most gifted in the church and sends them out. And... It happens, and it says, while they were ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit says, set them apart. Now, the idea there is, apparently, they were just doing some very normal worship. The idea of ministering could have been simply translated worshiping the Lord. In some translations, that's what it's translated as. But it wasn't that they were doing something exceptional. It doesn't appear. We don't know for sure. But it was what we would understand as worship, and the Holy Spirit speaks. And in the context, it was probably through one of the prophets. Through one of the prophets, the Holy Spirit says, I want you now to set apart Saul and Barnabas, and I want you to send them out. And it's interesting that uh, if you look at the first journey that they went on, uh, it's estimated that it was 895 miles And in the time in which they took that journey, they probably walked 
15 miles a day on foot. And so they were booking it and still preaching and teaching and ministering in, in various ways. And so God sends out um, Saul, who becomes Paul, and Barnabas, commissions them through the church, which is significant. They didn't go out on their own. They didn't just get a word from God out in the woods and run off. Uh, the, the church formally commissions them and sends them out and basically says, by laying hands on them, you are our representatives. I want you to go and do in other places what we're doing right here. And that's why I make the application I do, um, is that missionaries are people who do things in other countries and in other cultural contexts that are the same kinds of things that we're supposed to be doing right here in our own culture and in our own context. And so that's what we see going on here. And Calvin highlights the fact, if you read what he says about this initial portion, he says, we as Gentiles, those of us who aren't Jews, ought to be very thankful for Acts chapter 13. Because we're Gentiles. We would not be saved if it were not for God's missionary heart to the Gentiles. And so the application that I want for us today is to think about the fact that there are are different aspects to why people become Christians. And Acts 13 kind of highlights different parts of why people become Christians. And the first thing to say is people become Christians because Christians talk. Now, why do do I say that? Well, in Romans chapter 10, verse 11, Paul says, For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So what does Paul say? Uh, Paul believed in the sovereignty of God over salvation. He knew that no one comes to Christ unless God sovereignly and graciously raises them from the spiritually dead. But he also says Christians talking is important. How will they be saved apart from the gospel and how will they be saved through the gospel unless believers are sent to tell them the truth? But it's important to realize that The motivation has to be right. It kind of goes back to the Jehovah Witnesses I was thinking about. What motivates you to do this? And uh, growing up as a Southern Baptist in Louisiana and just being in the pastorate for these years, over and over, Southern Baptists will say, it's kind of like a mantra, keep the main thing the main thing. And what they mean by the main thing is evangelism. Keep the main thing the main thing. And I would argue that's not the main thing. The main thing is not evangelism. The main thing is worship. Why is that? Because evangelism is the overflow of worship. That's what was happening in this church. They were worshiping. Holy Spirit said, set apart uh, Saul and Barnabas. Evangelism and sharing the gospel is to be the overflow of 
of our worship of God. And in a sense, you could say evangelism is worship in front of unbelievers. It's where I'm speaking well of God and speaking well of Jesus before those who don't know him. And I'm telling them what's so great about God. What's so great about Jesus? What's so great about this Christian way? Um, Charles Spurgeon again said, We shall not long have love for man if we do not first and chiefly cultivate love for God. So witnessing is just a form of love for man. And he's arguing that in order to be rightly motivated and truly empowered to love men as we should through the gospel and in other ways as well, it's our love for God that needs to be cultivated. Um, And so our missionary heart is going to be tied to our heart of worship. And so it's very appropriate that um, Dan highlighted the importance of worship at the beginning of our service as we talk about the importance of offering the water of life to people. And so one of the things that I think we need to keep in mind when we think about sharing the gospel with my own little children or sharing the gospel with my friends or sharing the gospel with my coworkers or neighbors or anybody else, I need to keep in mind that God uses people. So he uses fathers and mothers. He uses neighbors. He uses coworkers. He uses Christians in all kinds of places. And we don't have to have a special gift to offer the water of life. And we don't have to have extensive knowledge to offer the water of life. It's interesting in Colossians 4, Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. So he's talking about pray for us, pray for us missionaries, that God will open up a door for the word. But he goes on to encourage them to do the same kind of thing. So he says, he says, um, that we might speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. When he talks about outsiders, he's talking about unbelievers, those who don't know Christ. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So the one hand, Paul says, pray for us missionaries as we seek to spread the gospel But also don't forget your own responsibility in your everyday life. As you go to the grocery store, let your words, your speech be with grace. I mean, I think that means be gracious to people in your speech, but I think it also means let it be filled with the good news of grace. The good news of grace in Jesus as much as we can in those conversations. There's a story about a high school girl that heard somebody encouraging them to be more intentional in their witness as high schoolers. And so she said, she prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, please um, open up a door for me at my high school uh, to be a witness for you. Help me to somehow act on what I've heard. And uh, very shortly after that, she walked into her class and sat down and her professor came in and was having a very bad day. And if you're a teacher, 
uh, you can imagine why this professor was having a very bad day. And he said, uh, I've had it. I'm tired of the hassle of teaching kids who don't have any respect. If any of you can tell me what life is all about and what our purpose is, go ahead. So something to that effect. He's just frustrated with life, frustrated with teaching, frustrated with the kids who aren't showing respect. I'm tired of life as I'm experiencing it. If, if anybody has any idea uh, what hope there is, feel free to tell me. And so that's when she just, I'm sure, timidly raised her hand and said, well, um, I'm a Christian, and I believe the answer to your questions are found in Jesus. And he said, well, talk to me after class. I'd like to hear more about what that really means. So they talked after class, and she basically just invited him to an evangelistic service. And he actually became a Christian at that service and is serving the Lord today. And so you might think, well, um, was she an expert about anything? I don't think so. Was she necessarily a gifted evangelist? Probably not. But she took an opportunity to say, I think I know where the answer is. Uh, I believe I found the answer. I felt the answer is in Jesus. And I think you'll find him to be all that you need as well. And one thing led to the other. You take the first step of raising your hand, then it kind of moves on. God has a way of leading you down that path. Um, we read this kind of passage, and I'll sort of wrap, wrap this up very quickly here. Um, we read this passage, and obviously Paul or Saul and Barnabas are in a different category. Not ever, not all any of us, are, well, I shouldn't say not any of us, but very few of us are meant to be missionaries like Paul and Barnabas. But all of us have a message of reconciliation. We, we all of us have an opportunity to engage pe- with people on that level. When I was in seminary, there was a track that I found one night uh, on this uh, stand in this common area. And it was written by Keith Green. And the, the title of the uh, track was, or this little pamphlet, was Why Everyone Should Go to the Mission Field. And so he basically argued that every single person, unless you've got a really good, clear word from God that you shouldn't go, you should go to the mission field. That's one ditch, is the idea that everybody is called to be a missionary. We're not. The other ditch, though, is illustrated, I think, by uh, William Carey when he was speaking to a group of Baptist ministers and he was encouraging them to embrace the idea that God wants us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this Calvinistic Baptist pastor stood up and said, when God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do so without your aid or mine. Basically, you know what, young man? Uh, God will save them when he's ready. Uh, you just leave, leave them alone. There are ditches on either side of uh, every truth in Scripture. One ditch is to say uh, everybody has to go. The other ditch is to say nobody's supposed to go. I mean, if God has gifted you and has given you a heart and the opportunity to go, then you ought to go. You, you ought to be a missionary. But if he hasn't given you the giftings for it and the heart for it, um, then he wants you to 
share that message right where you are. He doesn't want you to go off into another culture except maybe on short-term type trips. And so the encouragement is to see that we are to pray for missionaries or to pray that God would send out um, workers into the harvest. But we're also to pray that in our own lives that we would be a part of that harvest, that we that God would open doors for us to share the gospel as well. And so the last two things is just to say, why why am I hindered in sharing the gospel? And why might you be hindered in sharing the gospel? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but two I'll just mention as I wrap up. One, maybe we're not preaching the gospel to ourselves as much as we ought to. It's hard to preach the gospel to someone else if you're not preaching it to yourself. If you're not yourself just fixated on Jesus as an able and willing Savior for you, are you going to be thinking much about Jesus being an able and willing Savior for somebody else? Probably probably not. That's why I think Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's Paul the missionary. He says, I live my life constantly thinking about Jesus as an able and willing Savior for me. He loved me and gave himself up for me. That shapes my life. And it actually fuels my message to other people. The second thing that can hinder us from sharing is that we're just kind of distracted. You know, Paul talks about Demas having loved this present world and deserted him. Earlier, Cheryl mentioned um, Lizzie, the, the lifeguard. There's a story that you may have heard of. It happened way back in 1985, where they actually, in New Orleans, my home, you know, my home state, they had this party for lifeguards, and they were celebrating the fact that no one had drowned certain, just during a certain period of time. There were 200 people at this party. It was a pool party. A um, hundred of the people there were lifeguards. And at the end of the night, they found a man drowned in the pool with a hundred lifeguards standing all around the pool, <clears throat> obviously distracted from what was going on in the pool. And so the reminder for all of us is there is a lot on our plate but we don't want to lose sight of the fact that there are people all around us who don't know Christ. And we can be so caught up in everyday life that we're not praying for them. Uh, we're not even asking God to open a door for us to try to talk to them. We're not thinking about how we might could uh, engage them because life is so full. And we want to pray that God would help us. And, and I need that as much as anybody, that kind of grace to have that perspective. And so let me just close us in prayer and um, ask God to help us as we think about this, whether it be with our own children, our own neighbors, our own co-workers, or otherwise. Father, we just thank you for the encouragement of your word. We want to be a part of what you're doing to save people. You're a sovereign, and you're gracious, and you're good. But you've told us that you use people to save people. And we want to 
not be in either ditch. We want to truly understand what it means to offer the water of life and to do so with joy and not with guilt, uh, to give our lives to what we need to and and yet not be distracted from those around us who need the gospel. And so we pray that you would encourage us that we don't have to be experts. We don't have to have a special gifting. Grant us grace to worship you more deeply and to apply the gospel to our own lives that we might be ready to share that gospel with others and to speak well of you to those who do not know you. And help us to pray for lost people. Help us to pray for open doors. And may you use us to work in the lives of others that they might truly find their happiness in you. Help us indeed to pursue our happiness and the happiness of others in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.